You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies. Uh, original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, she's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in the, in the United States. Uh, if you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. Uh, that will meet all your office and party needs. Go to MySweetLifeCookies.com to place an order, or if you're interested in a tray, there's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to MySweetLifeCookies.com, check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world, and I ain't lying. Dominic Gilliard is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church, ECC. Gilliard also serves on the Board of Directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. In 2015, he was selected as one of the ECC's 40 Under 40 Leaders to Watch, and the Huffington Post named him one of Black Christian Leaders Changing the World. An ordained minister, Gilliard has served in pastoral ministry in Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland. He was also a campus minister at North Park University and the Racial Righteousness Director for ECC's ministry initiatives in the Pacific Southwest Conference. He's the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, which won the 2018 Book of the Year Award for InterVarsity Press, and which book forms the substance of our conversation today. Dominique Gilliard, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, a lot of people uh, won't know you uh, by name, uh, which is a shame because you've written a really good book, uh, and I think you're doing a good work in the position that you're in. But uh, why don't you take a minute or two, introduce yourself, to say anything you want to. If you like popcorn and you think everybody needs to know them, let let it go. Well, my name is uh, Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. I'm originally from the Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, I was born in, into a family that uh, I like to jokingly say that God took the best part of the call upon my mother's life and the best part upon the call upon my father's life and merged them onto the call upon my life. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, so my father, uh, for a number of years, worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, wow. which is the organization that Dr. King founded during the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. And my mom is a pastor who, well, was a congregational pastor who last year got promoted to serve as a superintendent within our denomination, which is essentially like a bishop in other denominations. Oh, wow. And she is the first woman of color to ever serve in that role in wow. our denomination. It's a 134-year history. So um, kind of this passion for God and pastoral ministry and application and then this passion for justice and it's convergence with um, an embodied faith, uh, really merging that to lead me to where I am now, where I serve as the National Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which means I'm essentially, 
a pastor to pastors mm-hmm. on the ground, helping them make connections between faith, race, and discipleship uh, for our 875 churches throughout the country. Dude, you have a really, really good elevator speech there. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, what part of Atlanta were you raised in? Because I was raised in Atlanta as well. So I was born in Decatur, raised in Stone Mountain, and then I went to undergrad at Georgia State University. Okay. I grew up in Riverdale, which is just south uh, Clayton mm-hmm. County. Yeah. Very yep. cool. All right. Well, you have written a, uh, a really interesting book called Rethinking Incarceration. Um, in season one of Uncommentary, uh, I interviewed Scott Heckinger, who's a public defender with the um, Brooklyn Public Defender's Office. And we talked about uh, sentencing and court and bail costs for the poor. You're kind of writing on the other side of that. Uh, You're writing about people who have been uh, incarcerated. What we need to, how we need to think about what incarceration looks like. I guess what uh, reconciliation looks like. Uh, How did the, how did this whole issue first become of importance to you? Yeah. So it started for me really kind of. Feeling the effects of it within my community, mm-hmm. uh, commonly uh, being with peers who didn't have brothers, cousins, uncles, and fathers in the household, um, and just kind of feeling that absence as somebody who came from a two-parent household, uh, just not feeling that it was normative mm-hmm. when I was going to my friends and peers' house, but then realizing how normal it was and that actually I was the anomaly um, in many ways. And then I read uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, and she gave me language for what I was feeling. Um, And then that kind of set me off on a journey to start doing some research and exploration. But this conversation really became real to me in uh, 2006, I was a senior in undergrad graduating from Georgia State University, and there was this tragic case that happened about 10 miles away from my campus where there was a stigmatized community known for drug trafficking. Uh, and officers were uh, patrolling the community and staking out the community to try to figure out where the epicenter for drug trafficking was happening. One officer said that he had deduced it after kind of staking it out for a month or so, and he went and petitioned for something called a no-knock warrant, which is a piece of legislation that allows officers to invade the premise of a home without having to stop, announce their presence, or display their warrant before right. going in. Yeah. And, uh, a judge granted him the uh, legislation, and he and two other officers two nights later came back to the community and performed what's known as a dramatic entry raid, where you come in Kevlar helmets, full military-grade weapons, um, and they uh, bulldozed the door with shotguns drawn at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, the home happened to be owned by a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of Catherine this. Johnston, yep, who lived this. by herself, mm-hmm. um, and she thought somebody was breaking into her house, so she started to flee. Officers thought she was trying to flee the scene. They deployed deploy 38 bullets and fatally struck her five times in her living room. Um, after that, they searched the house. There's no drugs nor drug paraphernalia anywhere in the house. They freak out. How do they legitimate what just happened? They ultimately craft the narrative and then decide to plant drugs throughout our house to make it look like it was just a botched drug raid going wrong. Um, and then the case goes to court. Those officers stick to the narrative that they composed in the living room that evening. And then um, they stick with that 
narrative all the way throughout the trial until they realize they're caught red-handed, and at that point, they confess to everything. They confess to killing her without cause. They confess to planting drugs in her house, and the first officers to fa- found guilty of actually fabricating evidence to get the no-knock warrant to start with. Um, and so when sentencing comes down, after all of those confessions, uh, those three officers get sentenced from a range of five to ten years, which is a fraction of the time that Captain Johnston would have gotten if she actually would have been involved in the drug trafficking mm-hmm. game. And so at that point, I knew um, that I, I had to do something. And what was really interesting was that my uh, I was a double major in undergrad, history and African-American studies. And my African-American studies professors were saying, as concerned citizens, we had an ethical and moral responsibility to go out and advocate for legislative change so that vulnerable people like Captain Johnston didn't continue to be preyed upon systemically like this. And I said, yes, that feels right. That feels good. That feels true. But what was really interesting was while my university was 10 miles away from where this happened, my church was 15 miles away from where this happened, and while my school was calling me to be actively engaged, my church had absolutely nothing to say about it. And I said, if there's anything that she can be compelling me to stand up for the dignity of the vulnerable and the least of these, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ and mm-hmm. not just my faith, uh, my academic community. So that's really what kind of planted the seeds for this personally in my life. So when you say rethinking incarceration, what does that entail? It means comprehensively rethinking the entire system and everything we think we know about what incarceration does. Okay, lay it out for me. So we're told this narrative that incarceration is something that ultimately provides uh, opportunity for people who have committed offenses to pursue rehabilitation and to ultimately come back into our community as healthy, restored individuals who are ready to help make our community safer, better places. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not what's happening presently in our criminal justice system. Um, And we are also uh, told that within sentencing, um, most people are led to believe that the victim of an offense actually has a chance to kind of speak into the process of what sentencing looks like. And again, that's not what happens with our present system. Uh, The present system says that a crime is a crime against the state and not against the individual or community. And so there have been a number of cases where sentencing has come down and the victim has actually opposed the sentencing and actively said, this is not what I desire for this person. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this is actually going to be anything that helps the situation or helps them reflect on what they did and learn from it. I actually would desire something else, and our present system mutes the victim and has no space for them to speak into the process of what accountability or restoration or even punishment, for that matter, looks like. Hmm. It reminds me of a, a situation I knew where a man was on trial, uh, and the the jury sent a message out to the uh, to the judge, and said, uh, "Can we recommend a counseling in lieu of prison time?" 
And, and the judge said, no, you can't, you have to, you can only recommend, or you can only, you know, choose to acquit or convict based on what the law actually says, not on what you think is the best case uh, for this particular individual. And as a result, the guy ended up going to prison for several years. The, the jury, the jury realized that something was askew with the process, but the judge wouldn't give them the, the opportunity to speak into the process uh, and try to do something about it. Um, so, yeah. When when you when you're talking about um, the the process of someone coming to trial, um, they're found guilty, whether it's you know they should be or not, they're found guilty and they're sentenced. Um, they go to prison, and it's not. Uh, I think the word is restorative. It's not restorative. It doesn't yeah. prepare them for anything. Can you talk about what uh, restorative means uh, in the context of dealing with people who've been sentenced to prison? Yeah, so there's this long history of this conversation. Um, so I'll just point to some of the ways that I think uh, restorative uh, elements of our system have been stripped away. Okay, good. So um, there. So historically, when um, solitary confinement first comes on the scene, it actually comes on the scene through the activism of Quakers and other religious leaders, and it's seen as this time where people are going to be able to sit in silence and spend time in Scripture, reflecting on kind of their offense, reading the Word of God, and actually kind of coming to a place of awareness, confession, and repentance to turn away from and learn what it looks like to turn back towards God. So that was the purpose um, of solitary was, confinement? Yes, this is that, wow. those are the origins wow. of it. Um, and so this was also back when um, the church was very much more engaged within the criminal justice system mm-hmm. in regards to its layout, um, its curricular design, um, and those those elements. Um, after a while, that, that relationship dissolves, and uh, the church is not as active or even as welcomed in for a number of reasons that I go into in the history part of the book. Mm-hmm. But um, what we see is as that happens, as that relationship disintegrates, then solitary confinement becomes much more punitive. Mm-hmm. And I would also have to say that the church played a role in that um, as well, where there were actually some chaplains who uh, had a belief of prison as a furnace of affliction. And they talked about uh, prison needing to be a place of suffering where criminals were brought to their lowest point. And at that point where they're about to break, that's where they came to the revelation of how desperately they needed a savior. And in that revelation, um, or to bring about that revelation, suffering was requisite. Mm -hmm. And so prison needed to be this dark, punitive place that ultimately really embodied a lot of retribution to bring about the transformation that was needed in an individual's life. And at that dark point, that's when they would need, they know they need the light of a savior. And so the church has this very kind of mixed, mixed bag, particularly the legacy of chaplains in church, uh, in prison, prison, has this mixed bag of kind of 
what it has looked like to bear witness to before we before we move on to chaplains let me ask you uh how many revivals broke out in solitary confinement over the years because of prisoners coming to faith in christ by reading the gideon bible in there by themselves i mean it was like thousands (laughs) and thousands like the fourth great awakening happened in you know death row and nobody knew about it or was it like yeah exactly (laughs) um but no, I think I think it's important for particularly people of faith to realize like the the footprint that we have on some of these conversations around uh, prison reform um, and the need for reform. Um, and I, I just give you another alternative witness of a chaplain. There was a chaplain by the name of uh, his last name was Dwight, mm-hmm. and he actually used his social capita to actually bring in legislators and politicians into prisons to help them see how um, unsanitary they were and how inhumanely people were being treated as a way to try to help them understand the need for prison reform. And so there's this real kind of divergent witness that's happened, some very good, some very bad and ugly. Um, But all that to say, solitary confinement started as a very good, healthy um, space for reflection and rehabilitation. Um, And it's uh, disintegrated to the point where right now solitary confinement usually consists of a person being locked into a cell that's smaller than a horse's stall for 23 of the 24 hours of the day in utter darkness, only given access to human contact and sunlight for one hour of the day. And the Geneva Convention has actually said that that should more appropriately be defined as torture and not incarceration. But in spite of that, 90,000 people every single day in this country are sentenced to solitary confinement. I'm talking to uh, Dominique Gilliard about his book, Rethinking Incarceration, and some things uh, in the American system of justice, and we'll be back right after this. So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget. The third way is by using my Amazon shop. So that's amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. Amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. Most of the books from the authors that I have interviewed are there as well as some that I just recommend for your reading pleasure. Uh, You get the same low Amazon price and it generates a commission to me which helps support Uncommentary. So I hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because I couldn't do it without you. Now back to this episode of Uncommentary. I'm back with Dominique Gilliard talking about his book uh, Rethinking Incarceration and the Criminal Justice System. Uh, now you make a statement, and this is really, really strong. So I'm going to I'm going to read the statement, and then I'm going to uh, ask you to elaborate. Mass incarceration is antithetical to the gospel. That's a pretty strong statement. So why don't you say it? Tell us what it means. Yeah, so it means that we live in a nation right now that prides itself on being the land of the free um, and also being a democracy where people are innocent until proven guilty. But the reality is that 75% of the people who are in American jails today are not there because they've been sentenced guilty or convicted of any crime. They're there because they can't afford their bail. Mm -hmm. We spend 
$14 billion annually holding people behind jail cells who hadn't been convicted of a crime. That's $40 million a day. But that's that's what the U.S. uh, mythology is really predicated upon. Uh, We live in a nation that also teaches us that uh, slavery in this nation was abolished in 1865, but the reality is that slavery has never been abolished in our nation because the 13th Amendment says that slavery in our nation is illegal except Mm -hmm. as a punishment for a crime. So what you have is millions of people who are locked up behind bars today who are essentially slaves and we and it's legally permitted because of that loophole that exists within the 13th amendment so what you have is brothers and sisters who are serving time behind bars who are being consistently dehumanized and exploited for their labor so men and women behind bars are working a full day's worth of uh, work and they're being paid on average 93 cents to four dollars a day for an entire day's work of labor and you see this in some ways as more exploited exploitative than others across the board it's uh, ridiculous but um right now there is a piece of legislation in california that is going before the senate uh where they're actually trying to advocate if people have paid attention to the news in the recent years there have been a number of stories of people who are being taken out of prison and they're being forced to fight wildfires yeah i saw that and so the average professional who's trained to fight a wildfire gets paid 27 dollars an hour if you're able to pull somebody out and work them for an entire day and you pay them a dollar instead of $27 an hour, think of all the profiteering that's going on there. Think about how much money that corporation and the government is pocketing in relationship to that. And then what's the real kicker? Because some people are like, well, you know, they're locked up. They're paying their debt to society. They shouldn't be getting paid. Well, the real kicker is that you have people who've been working behind bars for particular companies for 20, 30 years, becoming experts in their craft. And then upon being released, they go back out to that same exact company and apply for the same exact job, and then they're denied access to the job because they have a criminal record. record. Yeah, that, that's, so what uh, that that's unjust, man. It, it explicitly says your labor is only desirable when it's exploitable. Yeah. And that's what our criminal justice system right now is predicated upon, that type of uh, exploitation and corruption, and particularly when we look at the private sector with private prisons, where the two largest private prisons in 2017 collectively made $4 billion off of incarceration. Wow. I remember the story from a couple of years ago where there was a judge in, I think it was in Pennsylvania, a juvenile court oh, yeah. judge, yep. uh, was being paid off by one of the prison corporations. Uh, I, I mean, basically, he was on contract for every kid you send to prison, we'll send you, know, we'll send you a bonus or a referral fee or something. I mean, it's like multi-level marketing for sending kids to jail. Um, thankfully, he got caught and was himself sentenced. Unfortunately, a num- you know, who knows how many kids? I can't remember now. It was a bunch. Yeah. Uh, ended so up between 2003 and 2008, he ultimately had to have 4,000 of his cases overturned because yeah, he had sent that many juveniles to prison unjustly. Mm. So uh, coming to your book, your book is a little different than uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow because you tend – uh, you have a focus, I think, on believers. You're, you're trying to convince yep. believers from a spiritual framework and a biblical framework that this is a biblical. This is an issue of biblical justice that the church needs to pay attention to. Um, walk us through a little bit how churches need. We, you mentioned a little bit with solitary confinement, but walk us through 
Um, one of the places that I saw was uh, several years ago, I figured out that Prison Fellowship actually has a, a side that's trying to deal with uh, prison reform. Uh, they're, yep. they're not just, hey, let's give prisoners Bibles. Let's figure out why they're in prison, and if the state has something to do with it and it's wrong, let's fix that. So there are some people that are in leading spaces, but your average person on the pew, and I've said this a million times, the average American thinks that the criminal justice system in America is law and order. We've watched so many hours on reruns that we think the <laughs> DA has everybody's best interest at heart. The public defender is doing the best they can, but they're funded and they know what they're doing and they've got one case at a time and typically everything works out and the bad guys go to jail and the good guys get off. Uh, That's not the case. What do we need? What do we need to know? What, what does the church need to know about this situation in America right now? So just to speak to that real quick, um, in our nation right now, one out of every 25 people who are sentenced to the death penalty are actually innocent. Wow. And so that's critical for us to know because it shows how much error there is within our prison system. Mm-hmm. And Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy, bluntly says that uh, we have a criminal justice system that works better for you if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Yeah. And it's ultimately poverty that is the main predictor of culpability in our criminal justice system, not actually guilt. Wow. And so we have to really wrestle with that as the body of Christ. And I think the scriptures explicitly call us to wrestle with this, um, starting off with Matthew 25, where we're all told if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be present behind prison bars, visiting our brothers and sisters who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says when we visit them, we don't just visit the least of these, but we actually visit Jesus himself. And so I always say we only have to have these conversations because we don't know because we don't go. Uh, we need to go spend time with Jesus behind bars. Mm-hmm. And um, when we do, we'll see the inhumane circumstances and the defacing of the image of God within our brothers and sisters on a daily basis. Um, Hebrews 13.3 calls us to remember the incarcerated as if we were incarcerated alongside of them, suffering right there with them. Um, so right now in this watershed moment in the U.S. where we presently have more prisons, jails, and detention centers than we do Degree-granting institutions. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Say, say, that ag- say that again. In the U.S. right now, there are literally more places where you can get incarcerated than you can get a college education. Wow, that's just insane. It is completely insane. That's it's just, never happened anywhere in the history of the world. We presently have more people locked up in our nation than any country in the history of the world. We represent the stat most people are more familiar with is that we represent five percent of the world's population, but twenty five percent of its incarcerated population. Yeah, which I mean, and, there's a whole other discussion to be had on overcriminalization, in addition yeah. to arrests and bail and the poor and the rich and all that kind of stuff. There, there's a whole different conversation as to why we have so many ways to break the law in the United States of America mm. that leads to a lot of these other things. But but continue with the and church's what, involvement. What, What's critical for the church to know is that unlike what you are led to believe on the nightly news because of the way that violent crime is sensationalized, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our nation are there for nonviolent offenses. Yeah. 
nearly two-thirds of people who are incarcerated in the country are there for nonviolent offenses. And the real truth is the vast majority of them need medical interventions and not incarceration. Yeah. Uh, the majority of people who are there are there for chemical substance abuse problems or mental health impairments, or they are people who are coming here, uh, immigrating for on refugee uh, with the hopes of to seek asylum as refugees or just to make a better life for their their family. And all three of which are nonviolent offenses, but those are the three major things that are actually setting up our criminal justice system to function in the way that it does. Um, and so in that, I think coming back to the conversation about the church, could you imagine what the witness of the church will look like in this watershed moment if we were truly remembering the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated? But then when we look at this conversation, even going deeper, the reality is that five of the books of the Bible were written in prison. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not some conversation that is strange to us, right. but Colossians, <laughs> Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, and Revelations were all books written in prison. Yeah. And the, the real truth is, I mean, particularly going back real quick to the conversation about the death penalty, um, one would think that the church in particular would think differently about the death penalty, given that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was falsely incarcerated by the state and falsely put to death by the um, state. So you would think that we would think differently about the death penalty than the rest of the world, because at the end of the day, the death penalty says that certain people are irredeemable. Mm -hmm. There are certain people who just, we can't do anything with them but to put them to death. And at the heart of the gospel rings the truth that there is no one who is beyond redemption. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that we can do or say that can ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, when we claim to follow Jesus and then turn around and go into the voting booth and actually say that certain people are irredeemable, it's a contradiction. It's a discipleship issue. And it's an issue that we really need to wrestle with, given the fact that we follow a crucified Savior who was resurrected to show us a better way to to live life together. And um, as I kind of close this piece, I think the real hard truth for the church to really wrestle with is that if you take all the incarcerated people out of the Bible, the Bible literally collapses. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> There is no good news without incarcerated people, and I don't mean that metaphorically. I literally mean that. Um, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. John the Baptist, who was called to pave the way for Jesus. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Peter, to whom Jesus said, Upon you I will build my church. Samson, Hananiah the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, Junia, Andronicus, all incarcerated people. That's amazing. So if God chose so intentionally to speak through incarcerated people, then why do we believe the guy still ceases to have that desire today? I would, I would, have, I would have jumped up and yelled "preach" when you got to the end of those names, but you know, being this podcast has only got a few more minutes left. <laughs> I, was, I was afraid you'd grab your Bible and actually do it. Um, yeah. Maybe another time, though. Hey, I do want to ask one. This I think is tangentially related to your book, um, but yeah. I, maybe not directly. But you kind of alluded to it near the beginning when you were talking about um, that you didn't realize till later in your life that you having a, a nuclear family, a father, mother, and yourself, and maybe brothers and sisters in your home was an anomaly where you grew up. That most had someone who either wasn't there for whatever reason or that they were in jail or had been in jail at some point. 
is it too strong for me to say that the average white suburban family in the United States doesn't know anyone or any family where anyone has ever spent time in jail and that the average urban black or African-American family knows multiple families or people that have spent time in jail. Is that too strong? Is that inaccurate? I would say that that is inaccurate uh, today. Okay. Uh, I would say I would say that's becoming more and more inaccurate. Okay. I'd say historically there was some truth to that, but the reality is, particularly given the opioid crisis, where there Great are 130 point. people dying a day from overdosing on opioids, um, that's becoming less of a truth. And just because of the the swell within our criminal justice system and the fact that let's just be blunt, our nation is addicted to incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that reality, right now, one out of every 14 children in our country has at least one incarcerated parent. Wow. That's of all, uh, all children, all children of all races, all classes, all the children in our country right now, one out of 14 have at least one incarcerated parent. And the number is only exacerbated by poor, for poor children and black children. So one out of eight, poor children have at least one incarcerated parent and one out of nine black children. Um, And, you know, we haven't really gotten to race, so I appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, We live in a nation right now where black men constitute 6.5% of the U.S. population, but represent 40.2% of our incarcerated population. Um, Black men uh, are predicted, one in three black men are predicted to spend time behind bars in their lifetime and one in six Hispanic males. And so the racialization of our criminal justice system is undeniable. I, uh, I had a conversation with, um, with an Af- African-American friend one time who uh, was talking about his supervisor said, uh, well, why are, you know, why are you late to work every however often it was? And my friend said to his supervisor, who was white, and, and we were all friends, so this is not like any of this was antagonistic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, my supervisor friend, you know, asked, why are you uh, late? And my African-American friend said, well, um, where, you know, where do you live? And he told him and he said, well, how often do you have to go through roadblocks uh, and drug checks <laughs> on your way to work? And he said, well, never, I never have to go through a road. Well, he said, well, I have to go several times a week through drug checks in my neighborhood. Um, and so a lot of people don't realize that part of this is the focus of the policing aspect on certain areas where more people do get arrested, even if they're not guilty of anything to go back to your other point about being held without uh, held with a charge, but not without guilt and not no ability to pay bail. Um, yeah, that pre-trial detention. Yeah, pre-trial yeah. detention uh, keeps a lot of people in jail that are from the same, same, same neighborhoods or the same types of neighborhoods, poor and, you know, inner city that don't affect me in the suburbs. I mean, I've, I've never gone through a drug check. There's never a drug dog come up and down my street looking for just whatever. Um, so there is a, uh, there is a lack of awareness uh, on the part of a lot of people in the burbs uh, about what goes on in other areas that doesn't for affect sure. them. For sure. And the, the, the stats that I was giving about um, incarceration, I think one thing that's really clear, and I need to, I know we're running short on time. No, so go I need ahead. To explicitly say this. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we have been socialized 
to link pigmentation and criminality. Wow. And so when I give those stats about one in three black men, one in six Hispanic men, most people hear that and they're not disturbed to the core the way that they should be because they think, oh, well, that makes sense because black and brown folks are the ones who are doing the crimes. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are using and selling the drugs. But the reality is that they've done study after study after study that have proven that black people are no more likely to use or sell drugs than whites. Right. Um, and so given that, how do we have the disparities that we do and why when we see stats like that, are we not surprised? Well, because every night when we turn on the nightly news, we hear uh, sensationalized uh, rhetoric around the criminality that happens in those two communities. And we have politicians calling entire groups of black people super predators mm -hmm. or entire groups of Hispanic animals who are coming south from south of the border who are going to rape and pillage our communities. And it happens on both sides. This is not a bipartisan sure, argument. Sure. Republicans and Democrats both do it. And they do it in a way that socializes us to actually think about these things as normative. Um, Michelle Alexander was really helpful for me in this. She said, I was at a conference. She was giving a presentation. She said, raise your hand if you went to college. Basically, everybody in the room raised their hand. She said, on your college campus, raise your hand if you knew on your college campus that there were drugs and people were using drugs. Virtually everybody raised yeah. their hand. <laughs> she said, when was the last time you turned on the nightly news and there was a drug raid on a college campus? Yeah, yeah. She said, it's not that we don't know the drugs are there. It's that we've made a decision about where we're going to wage the war on drugs and where we're not. Yep. She says, so drugs are on every college campus. Drugs are in executive boardrooms. Drugs are in suburban communities. But we've chosen to wage this war in impoverished communities of color. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have the discrepancies that we have. And it was just really a profound moment of revelation for me, somebody who's gone to four different universities uh, through the course of undergrad and graduate school. And I for sure knew where drugs were on every single campus. And wow. there has never been uh, a drug raid on college campuses in that way. And so it was just a really profound moment of revelation about how this stuff kind of works out. And then lastly, I I'll talk about the sentencing disparities that happen. Uh, the most popular one that most people would be familiar with is the disparity between in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine. Right. So up until 2010, there was a hundred to one disparity for those who were caught with the exact same amount, and that's the critical part of crack and powder cocaine uh, for the person who had crack, which mm -hmm. is the lower price drug that's disproportionately used by black and brown people, um, than a person who was count caught with the same amount of powder, which is a higher price drug that's disproportionately used by whites. Uh, Obama said he's going to fix that disparity in 2010 with the Fair Sentencing Act, but he only reduced disparity for the disparity from 101 to 18 to 1. So there's still an 18 to 1 disparity on the books, and that's important because it helps us know that part of the reason why there is this disproportionate number of black and brown people who are in jail, I mean in prison, is because when they're sentenced for the exact same offense, they're getting more punitive sentencing. I've been talking to Dominique Gilliard about his book, Rethinking Incarceration, as well as some uh, related content about the American system of justice uh, and some American systems that are in, just unjust. Uh, so where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me online at DominiqueGilliard.com. 
Um, and then they can also find me online on Facebook. I just do a search for Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Um, that's my author page, and I update it every day or two with new criminal justice reform uh, announcements and progress, like just yesterday in the state of California, the governor came out against the death penalty, calling it immoral. I mean, calling it irreversible and immoral, and he basically halted the death penalty for 737 people people who are in line to actually endure it. Uh, so I give updates like that so people know what's going on. And um, one last thing I want to say, we didn't get to this. Sure. Um, when we talk about this as the church, um, one thing that's really important as we actually live in the Matthew 25 and go spend time with our brothers and sisters who are behind bars, many of which who have committed criminal criminal offenses but sincerely regret what they've done and have turned away from that life and actually turned towards Jesus. One of the things that's really exciting is that we get a chance to actually be a part of discipling them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, I'm connected to a program in North Park Theological Seminary where we actually do a combined learning um, classroom where half of the students are seminarians pursuing pastoral ministry and the other half of the class are men serving life sentences behind bars. And in that combined learning community, one of the things that we found is that there are a number of prisons throughout the country that don't have a witnessing campus. And we've been doing discipleship with the men that we're working with so thoroughly that a number of them are actually being sent off as prison missionaries to start church plants in other prisons throughout the country. Wow, that's fantastic. So we actually get a profound opportunity to help people realize even if you have a life sentence, you still have an opportunity to participate in the Great Commission. You actually have a purpose for you guys still has a purpose for your life, and you can actually be a disciple who's making disciples. So I think that's one of the real joys that the body of Christ misses out on when we actually don't take up, take seriously Matthew 25 and go spend time behind bars. That's fantastic. Dominique, thanks so much for being with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as 2 bucks a month, swag level 3 bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, MartyDuran at Yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at MartyDuran. Follow the podcast at UncommentaryPod. And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria.